This morning we'll be looking at Amos chapter 8, including this morning just two more weeks in Amos, chapter 8 and then chapter 9. Then we'll turn to the New Testament, to the book of Titus. But if you would please, for now, give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. It is completely authoritative over our lives. And it is completely sufficient. Amos, chapter 8. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, What do you see? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell again? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, And as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Thus far the word of the Lord our God. Let's pray that he would add his blessing to it and lighten up our hearts. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank You, O Lord, for the Word that You give to us. Even when it seems hard, O Lord, it is something that we need, that we cannot live without. We pray, Lord, that You would make the Word real to us this morning, that we might follow after You. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever had the experience of having people around you that maybe weren't just quite as good of a listener as you thought? You know what I mean. It's the kind of thing where you say to your children, you know, you need to clean your room. And about an hour later, don't forget, clean your room. And an hour or two later, you know, if you don't clean your room... You will not be able to have dessert after supper. So just know what I'm saying here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I just want you to know. I want you to hear me that you have to clean your room or you won't get supper. The day goes by and, of course, the room remains something like a a small thermonuclear explosion has gone on in it. And supper comes and goes and the time for dessert comes. And you begin to give dessert to the others in the family and your child looks up to you with these shocked eyes. Why don't I get dessert? Well, because you didn't clean your room. But if you had only told me, I would have cleaned it. Or maybe it's you ladies have done this with your husband. You say, you know, you need to stir that on the stove or it'll burn. I got it. I got it. I'll take care of it, honey. You walk by again, you know, that looks like it's going to burn if you don't stir it. No, I I can take care of it. Just, okay. You come back and guess what's happening on the stove? It's burning. You know, it's burning. Oh, no. Why do you tell me the stove gets this hot and it'll burn? Well, I did. Or maybe you husbands have had this experience with your wives with the car. You checked the oil lately? Is the oil Okay. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it's fine. It's fine. You know, if you don't check the oil, bad things will happen. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm busy. I've got to get some. Honey, the engine is smoking. Is that bad? I don't know. Let me go check. Oh, what? You know, the dipstick here is practically dry. Well, how does that happen? Did you check the oil? No, you didn't say anything about checking the oil. Now, these are humorous things, but this is what we've been experiencing through all of the book of Amos. Over and over and over and over again, the Lord God is crying out to Israel, warning them of the punishment that is about to come. And Israel is nodding their collective heads. Oh, yeah, we understand. Sure, we do. Sure, Lord, we understand. We're not that bad. But finally now we have gotten to a point where the warnings are about to cease. God is going to continue to declare Israel's sin to them, but the problem is is that the end is now upon them. They have reached the point of no return. They have reached terminal velocity. But the Lord is still coming alongside them. 
not only to prepare them for the end that would come, but to serve as a warning for those who would follow. In history, we see that the other nation of Judah went down this path, but just some years following. But there is also a warning to us, to the people of God here today, that if we do not heed the warnings of the Lord, the end will come to us as well. Because you see, you cannot escape the truth of God's Word. You cannot pretend with God. And that's what Amos 8 here is about. We're going to see Amos describe the end for Israel and describe it in in three ways. First, we will see the ripeness of the end. The fact that the end is not only near, but it is upon them. Secondly, Amos will describe to them the reason that the end is here. It is not only ripe, there is a reason why the end is upon them. And then finally, they will see the consequences that come, the rejection. The rejection that comes in the end. Ripeness, reason, and rejection. Let's begin then by looking at chapter 8, verse 1, and see the ripeness or the fullness of the end as it has arrived to Israel. It begins with this almost humorous exchange between Amos and the Lord. You know, so often we look at the Scriptures and we think we need to find some kind of extreme esoteric meaning in them. We have to find out what every little shade or meaning is. And there must be some kind of deep, hidden meaning. And if we can only find that, then we will be heroes of the faith. But this chapter really belies that. Because Amos says, I looked and I saw a basket of summer fruit. And God asks the incredibly difficult question, what do you see? We almost picture Amos looking. A basket of fruit? Exactly, God says. Exactly. It's a simple thing, but it is something that as soon as I describe it, you immediately know what this is. This is a basket of ripe fruit ready to be eaten. This is when the pears are nice and soft. When the nectarines are juicy, not when they're hard and chalky. When the bananas are that perfect shade of yellow, not green. When the apples have that great crisp crunch to them. They're not soft and mushy. This is a perfectly ready and ripe basket of fruit. And it describes for us, too, we think about it, even the progress of the seasons and life. Because fall is a progression of the year. Now, we joked a bit about that, that in Houston we don't really see this, but think back in your mind's eye if you've ever lived or traveled somewhere else. You know what time of year it is by the coolness of the air or not, by the color of the leaves. It's part of the progress of life. We, we match how life goes along, that spring comes and then summer and then fall and then cold winter and then the new spring again and we start over again. There's kind of a season to life, isn't there? And that's what's happening here. There is a progress of the seasons, and you can almost see here this basket of 
ripe fruit, the kind of fruit that would be presented at the Feast of Booths in the early fall. It's the profit of the summer. It's the blessing of the summer. It's completely ripe. And God is using this to describe to Israel that their time is completely ripe. And he does it in in an almost humorous way, not only with the question, but you see here, he asks Amos, what do you see? And Amos says, a basket of summer fruit. And then God responds with something that seems odd to our ears. He says, the end has come. Now, the irony here is that in Hebrew, the word for summer fruit and the word for the end sound almost exactly alike. God is giving us here a biblical pun. He wants us to see, he wants Israel to see that their end has come upon them, that they are ripe for the picking, that their judgment is ripe, that there is no waiting for the banana to yellow. There is no waiting for the apple to become ready for eating. They are ready now for destruction. He has said this over and over and over again. And he begins then to describe the consequences of this ripeness. It's a complete reverse of everything that they have thought. Look, the end has come. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple will become wailings. So many dead bodies, they cry. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. The first thing that we see is that they have insecurity. God has said to them, you are about to be destroyed. Look, the bodies are everywhere. Look, they're thrown so many dead. Look how insecure you are. How unlike their own assessment. As they walked about thinking how secure they were in their great military victories, in their great technology, how they had it all together. Do you know anyone that is falsely secure? See, history is instructive, isn't it? We're all now a bit less secure feeling about our retirement accounts after the last few years in the stock market, aren't we? Because we realize the stock markets go down as well as up. We're a little bit insecure. Ever since 9-11, we've become a little bit more insecure even in our safety and in our traveling we realize that we are not promised life forever. The warning from God comes not just to the Israelites, but to us. There's not just insecurity, though, that they're counting on. There's also sorrow that comes to them. The songs of the temple will become wailings. Now, this would be news to the Israelites because they were used to looking for their pleasure to find the biggest and best houses, the best drink, the best food, the best beds, the best covers, the best of everything to make themselves feel just good. It was the pursuit of materialism and things. And now here the Lord God tells them that this will all be turned upon its head. You will have nothing. You will be turned to wailing. Are we tempted to pursue the best of things for ourselves to make ourselves feel better? Do you realize today 
that no matter what your situation is, dare I say, even if you are unemployed, you are amongst the richest people that have ever lived on the face of the earth. That's hard to remember, isn't it? Because we always want just a little bit more. We always do. There's this fateful saying. Rockefeller was asked, how much money is enough? And he answered, just a little bit more than I have. You see, isn't that what we are tempted to seek after? But you see, Amos says to Israel, and he says to us, if you're not seeking after the Lord, there is no pleasure. There's only sorrow and pain. And the last thing that comes to them is shock. They were so certain that they had all of the answers, that they knew all of the ritualism, that they knew all of the rites, that they had all of the answers. And how do they respond to the Lord? Silence. They're, they're dumbfounded. You need to picture the Israelites hearing and seeing this destruction, standing there with mouths open and eyes wide, so shocked that they were so wrong. Are we tempted to trust in ourselves and our own rightness? How does this come about? How does this rightness come to Israel? How do these consequences come before their face? Well, they come before them because of unbelief. An unbelief that strikes at the heart for both you and me. I don't mean just generally a disbelief in God. I don't mean that this applies only to atheists. I mean it applies to us as practical atheists. They don't know the right thing about themselves. And they don't know the right thing about God. You see, they don't know what's right about themselves. They underestimate their responsibility to obey the Lord. They think they can get away with halfway measures. They think that they can be on the cheap. Oh, well, you know, we could bring a lame sacrifice. God won't see. He won't care. Oh, well, we'll just show up at the New Moon Festival. That's really what's important, isn't it? We'll show up and we'll look at our watch and get ready to leave. Oh, well, we don't really need to help poor people. We'll just give them some of the dregs from our table. They underestimate their responsibility before the law of God. And as a contrary, they overestimate their ability to do the right thing and to be obedient. Now, this is the state of Israel today, but if this isn't the state of 21st century America, I don't know what is. We underestimate our responsibility to our neighbor, to our friends, to our family, to the church, and we overestimate our ability to do everything, don't we? It's the main reason that one of the things that has vanished nearly out of the church, and it's a very sad thing, is the ability to ask for help. If you want to know what bothers your pastor, it is not that you bother him. It is that you do not ask for help. Because that shows a confidence in the Lord. You see, when you think you have it all together and you can have all the answers and you don't have any problems, that says that your confidence is in yourself. I know what I'm doing. I don't need anyone to pray for me. Oh, I don't need anyone to help me. I, let me. How can I help you? 
You see, we overestimate our ability to live the Christian life, and that is dangerous. Because the Christian that has walked with the Lord for decades still needs Jesus as much then as the first day that they embraced Him by faith. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength that you know you do not have it all together. And the Israelites failed this test over and over and over again. Amos kept pleading with them to follow after him. He kept pleading with them to read God's word, to know God's word, to act on God's word. And they walked around, heads held high. We know what we're doing, Amos. Please be quiet. They didn't know themselves and they didn't know God. They thought that God was like they were. That He was forgetful. I know my own weakness in that respect. I've shared that with you at times. I need to write down reminders. Not a Sunday goes by when someone asks me something and I'll say, could you please send me a note on that? Send me an email so I remember. But you see, the problem comes when we think God is like that. When we sin against Him, and two weeks later we think He's forgotten all about it. That He takes no notice of it. Like He's a doddering old fool. No. God remembers. God understands. He does not forget. He forgives And he forgets in Christ, but he does not simply look the other way. There is a reason why the Lord Jesus Christ went to Calvary and died on a cross. And if God could simply forget sin, then the cross is not only meaningless, it is an affront to everything that is right in the universe. Why punish the Lord Jesus Christ? Why pour out your wrath upon him if you could simply say, well, no big deal. It's a horror. They forgot who God was. They thought forgiveness was cheap. And the ripeness of the end then was before them. But there was a reason for this. There's a reason why that fruit is ripe for the picking. The reason for the end is that they had no need for God and they had no need for others. Let's begin by looking at Israel and their complete lack of need for God. Hear this, he says in verse 4. You trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell again? Now, I want you to see here in verse 5, there is a root sin that is described. Verse 4 describes for us a sin that is very obvious and practical. They are trampling on the needy. Anyone could look at that and see that as sin. It would be like if we went out after church this morning and saw two men out in the parking lot, one of them on the ground, the other one kicking him in the head and in the stomach and in the legs, we would easily see that this is wrong. But the question is, what is behind that wrongness? What is behind that trampling of the needy? And it's found here in verse 5. You see, when Amos says that they do this saying these sorts of things, it means he's describing their character. It's not just the words they say. It describes the type of people they are. And what do they say? They say, oh, 
When will the new moon be over? Oh, when will the Sabbath be done so we can get to work? Now, you need to understand here that the new moon describes a new moon festival of the Israelites. It would be the equivalent in our day and age of someone saying, is Christmas Eve almost over so we can get to the mall? Oh, is Easter almost finished? I have work to do. Now, I want you to notice they are present at these services. They say, when will the Sabbath be done so we can finally get around to selling? They are honoring, in quotes, the Sabbath. These are not people who are rejecting God's law. They are turning it into a form. They think if all they do is check the box that they are good to go. When we describe it like that, those kind of people are not out there. Those kind of people are in here. It's me and you. Because the others don't care about the new moon. They don't care about the Sabbath. But you see, we did to check the box. This is what happens, children, when the only reason you are here is because your parents drag you. It's a formalism. When you are not here to seek the Lord Jesus Christ and to find help in your life, with your problems, with your needs, not mom and dad's, your own. It's what it means What all we think we need to do is show up and everything will be all right. But God doesn't just want us to show up. God wants us. And you see, being attentive just to religious forms is nothing. They were honoring the Sabbath. But it was a duty to them. It was drudgery. Not the delight it is supposed to be. Their minds were not in it. Because their minds were not on God. You see, for them, gain was more important than God. Do you notice? They have to get done with religion so they can get back to making lots of money. And if they make lots of money on the backs of other people dishonestly, well, that's okay. Do you see the hypocrisy there? They're finishing up religious duties quickly so that they can get back to cheating, lying, and oppressing. And they don't think God sees that. God sees their heart. God sees our heart. And in their heart was the fact that they did not need God. They would just go along fine on their own. And it is no small leap to not needing God, to not needing Others, not only did they want gain more than God, they wanted gain more than honesty, more than their own good name. Look what they do. They want to sell, in verse 5, but they want to offer wheat for sale that they may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. Now, what's happening here is an ephah is a size of a basket. You might think of it as a bushel or a quart container, or a gallon. And if I tell you that you went to the store and bought a gallon of milk, 
And then you went to another store and bought a gallon of milk, and one was only about three-quarters as high as the other one, you would think, what? I just got ripped off. A gallon is supposed to be a gallon. That's why they call it a gallon. But you see, if you make the EFAF small, you have to put less in it. Your margins are a little bit higher. If you make the scale, the shekel, great, you make the money way more. When you count back the change, you give back less. You know, it's actually been found in archaeological digs that many of these shops had two sets of weights. One, a set of scales for buying, and one for selling, so they could make it coming and going. The middleman never loses. You see, what they were doing was being deceptive and dishonest. Gain was more important to them. And then they even go so far, look at this, as to, in verse 6, to sell the chaff of the wheat. Now, you know what that means? They had grain in areas, in bushels, on the counters, and they would serve it to people. They would sell it to them. And as they did that in the hustle and the bustle of the day, little small pieces and other pieces would fall on the ground and get stepped on and ground up. And then as the end of the day approached, they'd get a broom and they'd sweep it up and they'd put it in and they'd sell it. Not caring that they were providing less. You see, they were abandoning others and the mercy for others. They were selling others for silver. When we don't need God, we find very quickly that we don't need each other. Is that the kind of society that you want to live in? Do you want to see that kind of society changed? Then you know where it begins? It begins in your seat. It doesn't begin with the government. It doesn't begin with the law. It doesn't even begin with the church or with me. It begins in your seat. It begins with you needing God. It begins with you needing each other. It begins with you serving each other for the glory of God. And you can do that whether you're 6 or 66. It begins by treating others around you respectfully. It's not working around or deceptively against someone at work. It's not saying to another child as he comes up at a Sunday night dinner, oh, you can't sit there. I don't want you to sit there. You sit over at the other table. Whatever place you find yourself, it's expressing and knowing that you cannot make it without God and you are going to do all you can to help others. This is the reason for the end. That leads us then to this horrifying rejection in the end. The rejection that shows itself in a loss of protection and in a loss of hope. What do we mean by a loss of protection? Well, Amos describes this vividly destruction in the end. He says, The Lord has sworn, in verse 7, by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account? The, the land itself is going to feel the pain of this destruction. 
In verse 9, the sun will go down at noon and darkness will cover the earth. In verse 10, I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son at the end of it like a bitter day. This kind of destruction, this kind of judgment comes upon the people of God. And it comes swift and sharp. Now, Judgment can come in many ways. It can come swiftly or it can come slowly like a slow decay and rot. Here it is swift to get our attention. But we have to understand that judgment also comes slowly as morals change, as views of the Bible change, as views of the church change, as views of the Lord Jesus Christ change slowly over time. And so here this warning comes that you will be lost and have no protection. There will be destruction in verse 8. It will be unmistakable in verse 9. It will be like darkness in the middle of the day. But there's another way in which destruction comes as well. This is something that I think we need to really come to terms with, especially as we live in America, quite insulated from things like roving bands of marauders. People kidnapping our children. People murdering our relatives. Or kidnapping them and selling them into slavery. We don't have those kinds of occurrences every day. Those things happen in the world, but not to us. But there's another way in which destruction is sure and it comes, and that is in the withdrawal of God's blessing. Perhaps the most frightening verse in all of the Bible is Amos 8, 11. Behold, pay attention, people. The days are coming. They're not here yet, but they're on the way. When I will send a famine on the land, not of bread, nor of water, but I will send a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Could you imagine what life would be like without the Word of God? With no Bibles, with no verses memorized, with no ability to find the wisdom that is found in God's Word, the comfort that is found in God's Word. That should frighten you to your core. One famous Puritan preacher put on a bit of a a play acting about this verse. He acted as if he was God. And he said, well, I'm not going to give you my Bible anymore. I'm going to take it from you. And then he acted as if the people, no, Lord, please don't take your Bible from us. Do anything to us. Kill us. Torture us. Enslave us. Do anything to us. But do not take your word from us. Because when the Word of God is gone, all of God's protection is gone. There is no hope. It's the Word of God that gives us hope, that points us to heaven, that gives us an understanding of who God is and who we are. Without the Bible, we are lost. And we become like the Israelites, wandering to and fro, 
The word here for wander is the, it describes the way someone walks when they're drunk. They, they totter. They stumble. They don't know where they're going. They go from side to side, north to east. They go everywhere, but notice where they don't go. They don't go south. They don't go where the Word of God is found at the temple in Jerusalem. You see, they don't have the Word of God, but they don't really want it. The Word of God is our protection against error. It is our protection against sin. It is our protection against ourselves. And we are rapidly becoming a place where the Word of God is being taken out of our lives. Some of you may have seen there was a story this past couple of weeks about a coffee shop that refused to let Bibles in the coffee shop because they were hate-filled, anti-gay. And we look at this and we say, look at how horrible the world is trying to rip up the Bible. And we don't think to ourselves, maybe that is God saying to people, you carry around Bibles, you talk about Bibles, but you don't read them and you don't obey them. I will take them away from you. God is jealous for his Bible. He's jealous for his word. If you don't want the word of God taken away from you, don't just worry about legislation. Dust them off in your home. Memorize them. Read them, love them, cherish them, pass them on to your children. Without it, we are completely unprotected. Lastly and finally, without the Bible, we are completely and utterly without hope. We don't know where to turn or where to go. We wind up being like the Israelites here in verse 14, swear by the guilt of Samaria. Swear by the God of Dan. Swear by the way of Beersheba. They import false deities into Samaria. They mix them up in some kind of multi-faith, multicultural mix. They corrupt the worship of God by setting up false idols at Dan. And they begin to trust in superstitions. They think that merely going on the way to Beersheba is something God must bless. It's about changing God's Word. It's about ignoring God's Word and about thinking God's Word is a magic talisman. If we are to have hope as the people of God, we must transmit the Word of God. You know, there's a famous saying that's trotted out nearly at every election. That the children are our future. And that's true. But what does that mean? If the children are our future, are we transmitting a lesson, a mindset of godliness to them? Are we transmitting a love of God's word to them? That's what our future looks like. There is either to be a future with the Lord and with His Word or without. Will you listen to God in His Word? Or will you be found like the person who doesn't check their oil? Or think about the burning stove? Or the consequences of disobedience? Hearing 
but not understanding. Listening, but not comprehending. Amos has been given to you and to me that we might follow after the Lord. It is a challenge we have right this day to take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You have given us these warnings. Warnings that we might redouble our efforts, O Lord. Warnings that we might know that You indeed are King and that Your Word is precious. We thank You, Lord, for all of the blessings that You have given to us. We thank You for the faithfulness that You have given to us. We pray that You would encourage us, that You would continue to fan the flames of faith within us, that we might worship You, that we might serve You, that we might know You. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.